Welcome, I'm Jean Parker, and you're listening to Discovering How, a podcast of the ethical business building the future organization. We're a global learning community using our workplaces to build a better future. On today's program, we're discovering how consultation can evolve decision-making and other organizational processes. Francoise Legoff will explain how she used consultation to implement a large, complex project involving hundreds of people, millions of dollars, and lots of agendas. Valerie Arnold poses the question, what biases do we bring to a consultative process, and how can we keep them in check? But first, the term consultation can be confusing. To many people, consultation means the seeking of advice from an expert or having a discussion about a specialized topic. But consultative decision-making represents a paradigm shift, potentially affecting every aspect of society. In this episode, we offer universal principles to create a more effective consultative process, inspired by the writings of the Baha'i Faith. The success of applying these principles is not limited to taking good decisions, but more widely allows us to create fruitful learning experiences that fully engage the diversity of ideas and the talents of all people involved. Trip Bartel has worked for many years as a mediator. He has developed nine stages of consultative decision-making he believes offer participants opportunities for personal as well as organizational growth. Here is how he defines consultation. My two-word definition of it is empathy and options. I think of it in collaborative terms. Quite often people approach uh, issues in competitive ways, figuring uh, there is a there is a native inborn conflict here, and the only conflict that really ever exists is a conflict of emotion. It's the attachment it's people's feelings have that they have toward a particular outcome. And so, while feelings can get in our way, feelings also make life worth living. The objective they have going in is very different than the solution they come up with going out. The defining characteristic I feel of consultation is a selflessness. You know, I always tell groups that if everyone's only giving 49%, we're not going to resolve this. So that's a prerequisite, selflessness. Yeah, selflessness. Well, not, no, it's not. But if selflessness isn't there at the end, we we haven't really achieved all that we could. Okay, let's talk about a little bit about the nine stages of dynamic consultation that you've come up with. Why don't we go through them? And if you could just give a brief definition of what each of them is. Well, you know, and and that's a good point. I look on them a little bit sequentially, but they're really a series of nine skills. And so with those skills or, or with those particular practices, I think you can have somewhat of a complete process. But the first one is, is guidelines. Guidelines create the expectation for the meeting. And guidelines should always be expressed in positive terms. And guidelines should focus on the best of people. Give in me an words, example of a guideline. Yeah, yeah. And the typical guideline people might have is no interrupting, right? Mm-hmm. Well, as soon as you use, put no in there, you're not telling people what you want them to do. So rather than saying no interrupting, saying we'll respect each other's point of view. Number two is empathy, emotional intelligence. And Teddy Roosevelt really said it 100 years ago. He said, 
I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. And, and it really start, it, what it really means is once people care, then they will be engaged. Stage three is in exploring the truth. Then you do want to gather information from a wide variety, but you also want to gather information from firsthand sources. And, and really developing not a single truth necessarily, but, but all the different facets of the same truth. Buddha has a great quote that says, there is your truth, my truth, and the truth. And I think that a willingness to openly search honestly for, I hate to say the causes, but, but to be open and honest in all aspects of the discussion. Number four is, is what I call framing, and it's looking at the big picture. You develop all of the different facets of truth, and then you're able to kind of look at a more complete picture of the situation. When you frame an issue, it's, the frame is emotionally intelligent. Well, it's kind and honest. It addresses the learning styles of those people that shows that we're learning in different ways. A frame is unifying. A frame is a statement of the issue that everyone agrees that's what we're here to solve. And once you get to the point where you're able to define an issue, then you can resolve it easily. But what happens is, quite often, we end up trying to resolve issues that we've never fully defined. Number five is where we expand and come up with more and different options. This, the key here is this, what the science tells us is that uh, literally brainstorming as a group is not nearly as effective as individuals working in isolation. Now that is kind of a contradiction to popular belief, isn't it? Well, it is. Well, you know, we need to think of brainstorming as a two-part process. And the first part of brainstorming is, takes place in, in the reflective moments. And you ask anybody, when do you have your best ideas? And they will always say, well, walking in a park, before, you know, before I'm going to sleep or when I'm waking up or when I'm exercising or showering. And I said, what do all of those have in common? And they all really share the fact you are in isolation. You are not in direct communication with another person. You're able to think your own thoughts internally. And, and at those times, that's when you have the real insights. The other half of that is having a vigorous debate. Well, and that brings up one of the principles of consultation being the, this notion that ideas, once they're spoken, become the property of the group. They are no longer tied to an individual. What I tend to say is the individual has, has released their emotional attachment to the idea and, 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 and participates equally with the group in developing the idea in more and better ways. And quite often when you do that, you talk to people and say, well, that ended up in a place I wasn't expecting and even a better place than I was trying to get to. So they can't be blamed if it doesn't work. <laughs> oh, exactly. Once the group takes ownership of the idea, they all have to share in its implementation too. So number five is, is the generating of options. Number six now is looking at the spiritual principles involved. And so, or looking at the principles involved in general. What are the principles that we need to use to resolve this? And the principles include any wisdom you feel is important for the group 
to, to, to carry forward as part of the decision you're going to make. Number seven then is the, is the evaluation stage. So in stage six, we identified what those values were. In stage seven, we need to somehow evaluate the choices we have. Okay, what's number eight? Number eight is the decision. By the time you get to number eight, you should be making a decision in unity. You should all be together. But number eight would represent united action. And, and I, what I always would say is no decision is complete until you have action. doesn't matter what you decide. If you have to take a vote, you haven't fully consulted. Number eight is around unified action, is, is around everybody working together to implement the decision. Number nine is reflection. And it's something that, that is very easy to do, but very few groups do it. And very simply, it's just asking two questions. It's asking what's working as part of our, our, our meetings. What do you want to keep? You know, what, what, do you, what part of this do you think is important to keep? And the other question is, what would you like to change? The, the nine stages were created after I had practiced for 15 years. So they were not theoretical stages created by a study of academic research. It's, it's a two-stage process. The first stage was when I graduated from college, I was considering going to law school, but I, never, I did not understand how an adversarial process would help the parties in, w w was really beneficial to the parties. I just didn't get how fighting it out somehow made things better. Francoise Legoff is the head of administration at the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies in Geneva. She has just completed a multi-year project to facilitate the reconstruction of the world headquarters of the Federation. This involved not only creating a new building, but managing the relocation of a staff of several hundred people, first to temporary quarters and then to their new permanent home. In this recent EBBF webinar presentation, she explains that a major goal of the project was the well-being of people. The goal of this office was, from the beginning, functionality, security, cost-effective, image, aesthetic. But uh, among all of this, we choose the major goal will be well-being of people working there, especially back because the nature of our work is very stressful. So how can we contribute to that? To give you an idea, we are located between the village of Petit Saconnet and a green belt. There, were, there was no access. So we offered to open the park of the property to the public to be able to connect with that green belt. And of course, the canton of Geneva find the idea really wonderful. We work on it through uh, a co-creation concept which I put slash consultation because um, consultation is not a, a word used in that sense so much in our business. We consult people on, on various ways, but consulting to co-create was new for, for, for us. And then we co-create the whole project with staff. Uh, we had several processes of consultation. It took a lot of time, but today it speed up every decision we have. We consulted with the neighborhood, who at the beginning was 
negative on the construction project in their environment. And today the neighborhood has become partner in the project and, and contribute to it. And then the Canton of Geneva has become a partner also to help us uh, solu uh, finding solution for everything. So the process was to involve rather than imposing, listening to the user's needs, uh, internal and external, and how people can take ownership of their own working environment. So we created various working groups to, to, to uh, address a number of issues and to try to say to people, this building is for 100 years. So it will be beyond your own time uh, as, as a staff. So we have to see in that project the possibility to evolve according to the needs in the future. So there were all kind of working groups that is mainly based on the well-being of, of people, interior design, common areas, uh, well-being, the park installation, and a mobility plan. So we attracted various processes into one process, uh, into one project here. What we, we learn a lot of things that now we are able to implement in the new building before we finalize the construction. And the key things that make the staff happier was the issue of noise and noise reduction. How can we deal with that? The luminosity and access to natural light, access of food, and that is very important <laughs> in that region, and the ergonomics of the office and a space green. Uh, so we address all of that and uh, we understood that this kind of uh, space will enhance collaboration. We had uh, four or five meetings with inhabitants. We were dropping flyers in their letterbox. They came to meetings. We tell them what we wanted to do, why we needed to do that, how we would like to avoid uh, disturbing them. But telling them for two years, three years, you will have noises around. People were so touched that they were consulted that we managed to turn the anxiety or the rejection of the project into uh, how can you contribute to make our neighborhood better for everybody. And you will have access to the park. What activity could you do in the park? How can we share the park? Why, uh, how can we share the, the restaurant um, and the meeting rooms? And we realize that many local associations have no meeting rooms around. So they, seeing they could have access to the meeting rooms gave them really a wonderful perception of the project. And they started to bring ideas and to say, okay, we could do exhibition together. We could have a, a wellness or a, a wellness um, project in the park. Uh, and we got a lot of support from the canton and the city of Geneva for, for uh, this vision of sustainable city and how we can have the population living in harmony with international organization. So it was for, uh, for me the collective search for a truth. And this is how indeed was a concern with analysis of specific problem, attaining higher degrees of understanding on a given issue or exploring possible course of action, consultation may be seen as a collective search for truth. Participants in a consultative process see reality from different point of view. And as these views are examined and understood, 
clarity is achieved. In this conception of the collective investigation of reality, truth is not a compromise between opposing interest groups, nor does a desire to exercise power over one another animate participants in the consultative process. What they seek rather is a power of unified thought and action. Consultation has created trust. When I propose initially a consultation process uh, or this co-creation process, uh, people were very uh, skeptical because they say we are we are doing that in our in our work. But then when I consulted individually every staff, they were surprised. They say, "But me." does my opinion count really because who am I? I'm not a manager, I'm not this. But the fact that everybody individually has been consulted, then every manager as a team manager was consulted and to contribute to say how you want to lead your team. What can we do to help you better lead your team? People were very interested because they said, wow, maybe I can get support here. When we selected um, the constructor and the engineers for the project, I had a specific presentation for them, asking them to give the best of themselves because they are contributing to a project for humanity and saying that if this project goes well, it will be no stress for our senior management and thus they contribute to focus their time to uh, humanity problem uh, and operations. And they were so touched to be given that uh, responsibility that the architect said it's the first time he has absolutely no problem with engineers and constructors. They are on time, they, they announce when there is an issue. Uh, we have lost one week in the construction uh, because of weather condition, but no issue based on, on bad work that could be done by some constructor. They are self-organizing themselves to contribute to it in the best way they can. And it's Im impressive because really they are so happy by what they learn about Red Cross and to give a sense, a meaning for them was very important. Sharing the sense of belonging that that building is for all humanity and and shows them that they are participating to building civilization. Everyone is talking about this in Geneva, and now the people in charge of renovating the German embassy, among others, want to know how this was done. And now, some thoughts from Valerie Arnold about the biases we all have the potential to bring to any consultation. This is read by Alice Blundell in the UK. Ecocentrism is a big factor in distorting reality during a consultation and inserting personal biases. But even without the ego entering the room, we often have past experiences inform our thinking in the present. Imagine how a person in the group frequently brings up a way of thinking that is opposed to ours. As soon as that person starts to talk and present their opinion, our brain will have dismissed anything they say just after hearing their first few words, just based on past experience. We need to be aware of our cognitive dissonance. Every human being has a need to possess an accurate view of things, aka to be right. Human beings need to feel consistent, aligned thoughts, feelings and behaviours. We resolve the inconsistency either by changing our behaviour or, more often, by distorting reality and changing what we tell ourselves about the situation. This affects both our thoughts and our beliefs. 
Another bias-creating element that enters meetings is when we have invested a great deal of resources in going in a certain direction, and opinions that dissuade that group from going ahead in that direction receive a lower level of attention. So how do we become more aware of the personal biases that prevent us from effective consultation? Raising our self-awareness through research, honest self-reflection and or mentoring is a good path. Analysing more carefully how and why we react in a certain way when a specific person expresses an opinion. What is it that creates a positive or a negative reaction to their opinions? More practical ideas to remove biases in groups is to change the location of the meeting, perhaps to a more informal setting, or adding off-topic articles and quotes, or even being brave, and including people you know to have contrasting views to break a pattern of existing biases. Finally, the key motivation of detaching from our personal opinion is to think of the final goal, of the better future that this consultation aims to bring about. Thank you for joining us. We hope today's program has inspired you, our listeners, with ideas for discovering how we can all build a prosperous, just, and sustainable civilization. This has been Ethical Business Building the Future, Discovering How. Get more from this podcast by sharing your comments, an article, or a link to something that's important to you. You can contact us on our website, www.ebbf.org. I'm Jean Parker for EBBF, and I thank you for listening.